Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. Biomarkers are an important part of medical research and drug development. A biomarker is a broad term that describes some sort of measurable property of the body, especially one that can tell us something about a disease. Common examples are glucose levels for type 1 diabetes and blood pressure for hypertension. Today on Endpoints, ALS TDI CEO Dr. Steve Perrin joins us to talk about what a biomarker is, how they're used in drug research, and a promising biomarker for ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases, neurofilament light chain. Um, to start, uh, you know, what is a biomarker and why are they important in drug development? So a biomarker is really a critical component of all aspects of drug development, right from you know early discovery all the way through even commercialization. And we tend to use biomarkers as what I'll call surrogates. Uh, they're things that we can measure um, that might be easier and more quantitative than some of the typical clinical endpoints that we might use. So, so biomarkers tend to be things that we're measuring in fluids or tissues. They could be proteins, they could be RNAs, they're ge- genetic biomarkers. They could even be things like imaging tools, but we use all of these to basically help facilitate in a more quantitative way various aspects of the drug development process. So that's the complicated answer to what a biomarker is. Mm-hmm. And what's the the most simple distillation you could give of what is a biomarker? Yeah, so examples are probably the best way to give examples of what I mean by a biomarker. So you could start off with one that's really obvious to everybody is glucose levels in type 1 diabetes. People measure their glucose levels all day long. Um, technologies have become really critical to not only understanding the levels of glucose, but also connecting that to pumps that therefore allows the uh, union of monitoring glucose levels with insulin secretion via a pump. So that's a, a perfect example of a biomarker that affects millions and millions of people in the country. Other examples, cholesterol level, levels and cardiovascular disease. We all look at our cholesterol levels. The lower we can get them, the better you're controlling your potential uh, cardiovascular risk. Um, there's lots of other ones. HER2 is a biomarker for certain types of breast cancer. We have very, very effective treatments for HER2-positive breast cancer. So that's another example of a biomarker. Um, some other ones that we use in clinical development, there's biomarkers of kidney function. So you can, And the nice thing about biomarkers is your goal is to try to find ones that you can measure non-invasively. The more non-invasive it is, such as sticking your finger to monitor your glucose, the better it is. I mean, there are other biomarkers which are useful, but if you have to get it from cerebral spinal fluid where you're doing a spinal tap every two days, that doesn't make any sense. So the whole goal here is to find biomarkers that are easily accessible. So how do you find out that a biomarker is relevant to a particular disease and then get it? um, What's the approval process like for the FDA and the government? So how a biomarker gets developed and utilized depends upon what type of biomarker it is and what it's being used for. So if a biomarker is being used more in the early stages of drug development, then FDA regulatory processes probably don't apply. Um, If you're trying to develop a biomarker, there's going to be a surrogate of efficacy in a clinical trial, as an example, the approval process through the regulatory process is quite complicated and quite time-consuming, and there's multiple different phases of how you would get that approved. So it depends upon what flavor of biomarker you're talking about. 
So um, let's talk about one of those more downstream biomarkers that might be um, a little more complicated. So as an example of how to get it approved? Yes. Okay. So how a biomarker gets approved from a regulatory standpoint is actually quite complicated. So if you want to develop a biomarker as a surrogate of efficacy in a clinical trial, there are specific guidelines that the FDA has published on how to do that, and it's part of the 21st Century's Cure Act. Um, and it is a process. You have to first, uh, it's a multi-step process, right? So first of all, somebody has to sponsor it, meaning they're going to invest their time and their money to present to the FDA plan to develop a biomarker for a specific indication. So the first thing is to submit a letter of intent. And in that letter of intent, you have to have some minimal requirements. You have to have, to have a fair amount of data to suggest that you have a marker that correlates with some aspect of the disease that you're interested in saying it's going to be used for. So you have to show utility. You can't just go in and say, I'm going to measure something X for everything out of the world with no data. And the more specific you can be in that letter of intent, the more likelihood you'll get a positive response back from the FDA of step two. So step two is more about expanding your data collection, which there you're going to go out and actually prove that you have a robust assay to quantitate this marker in your indication of, of interest or choice, and that you can differentiate that that marker is not present, not only in healthy controls, but a step further in mimics of the disease as an example, especially if you're using it as a diagnostic biomarker, you need to really go to great lengths to show specificity and sensitivity and that your assay is robust. All of that then has to be presented back to the FDA. They're going to go through a fairly lengthy review process, and then they're going to give you approval to start testing it in clinical trials to see if it actually holds true. So it's a fairly lengthy process from a sponsor perspective to go from a research tool, a clinical research tool, to an FDA-approved endpoint for whatever you're trying to use it for. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, this might seem sort of obvious, but... Why is the process that rigorous? Why do they um, sort of regulators feel like they need to be this stringent about making sure these are valid? So the FDA has put this process in place, and it's a good process from my perspective, by the way, because if you're going to use a biomarker as a clinical readout or decision-making on healthcare, you better get it right. I mean, you don't want to be misclassifying people that they have Alzheimer's disease, and in reality... They have frontal temporal dementia. And if there's disease-modifying treatments for both and you get the diagnosis wrong, you're putting that patient at risk. So this process has been designed to make sure that your the goals and the utility of your biomarker are very specific, that your assay can measure it in the way that you're intending to use it, and that the data is interpretable to add value and reduce risk. So it's a complicated process because it's really important. Uh, and so now that we've sort of talked about what a biomarker is, uh, let's let's talk about neurofilament light chains. What is what is a neurofilament light chain? So neurofilaments are components of neurons, uh, all types of neurons. Pretty much every neuron that you have has uh, some aspect or components of neurofilaments. They come in groups. There, it's not just one class. There's a few different classes, and it's based on molecular weight. So there's neurofilament L neurofilament light chain, there's neurofilament M uh, uh, medium, and neurofilament H for heavy chain. So these three proteins come together to form neurofilaments in neurons, and they, they kind of biologically serve two functions or roles. 
they add a structural integrity to the long processes that are present in, in neurons called axons, which are very long. But in addition to that, they also form a communication highway where they actually shell cargoes around in the cell. So they're kind of a dynamic component of the cytoskeletal architecture of a neuron. Um, and that's how they were first identified. Um, I don't know what else you want me to say at this point about it besides yeah. that. So that's kind of what they are. Mm -hmm. Well, let's then, um, how are they already being used as biomarkers for neurological diseases? So I think the key thing about neurofilaments is because there's a lot of publications right now mm -hmm. that this could be a biomarker for neurological disease indications. This is not news. It's not mm -hmm. new. Uh, there's publications going back to the early 90s showing that neurofilament heavy chain in particular um, was associated with changes in neurological disease indications. And neurofilament heavy chain is the unique one of the three and the tail of it, the neurofilament, the tail end of the protein is phosphorylated. And a couple of different research groups showed that changes in the phosphorylation of neurofilament heavy chain correlated with neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. Um, so back then, 20-something years ago, these were research tools um, that people were using just to show that this particular component of the cytoskeleton looked like it was changing in neurological diseases. Um, they were very small studies, four or five people, you know, really hardcore biochemistry. Uh, they weren't really thinking of them as biomarkers at the time. They were more trying to understand why changes in neurofilament phosphorylation correlated with neurodegeneration. Um, so now you fast forward 10 years and all of a sudden more robust studies started to think about using these as biomarkers uh, in clinical research. Uh on that answer, can, we, can you just talk a little bit about, you, you said phosphorylation, I got that. What is that? So it's a post-translational modification of a protein. So neurofilaments are proteins. Uh, so let's go back to some high school biology mm -hmm. for 35 seconds for everybody. So everybody's taught in basic high school, and this is the really simplistic version. Things have changed over 40 years. But the genes in the nucleus of a cell... Uh, will unfold and kind of bubble, and that basically opens up the double-stranded DNA helix for a piece of your genome, and a very, very small piece at a time, can get translate, transcribed into what's called RNA. So RNA, unlike DNA, is single-stranded nucleic acid. That leaves the nucleus and enters the cytoplasm of the cell, and then ribosomes in the cytoplasm will translate that RNA into a protein. And proteins are what make cells work. DNA replicates cells, RNA is kind of the blueprint for what types of proteins need to get made for the cell to do its job, but proteins are the workhorses. So post-translational modification, phosphorylation, happens after a protein has been made and it's doing its job in the cell, and then the cell decides it wants that protein to do something different, it can post-translationally modify it. And there's lots of different ways to do that, but one of them is phosphorylation, and phosphates are very highly charged changes to a protein, so it can really dynamically target that protein to be destroyed. It could target the protein to stop working the way it was designed to work. It could give it an entirely new function. So it's a modification that the cell puts on something to change how it wants that protein to work. And so um, we talked about how other neurofilaments um, have been researched for a long time, but why are um, 
researchers interested in the uh, neurofilament light chains specifically for ALS as a biomarker? Yeah, so as I mentioned, neurofilament light chains have kind of have started to be the focus 10 or 15 years after the original findings with neurofilament heavy chain. And some of these were because of retrospective analyses of clinical trial samples that have been banked and stored. The first studies I'd say were happening around the mid-2000s. Uh, Lou et al. really gave a pretty seminal retrospective study of a very large cohort of people with ALS showing not only neurofilament heavy chain, but also neurofilament light chains uh, correlated with disease progression rates, not only in CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, but that you could also measure it in blood. And that was an important transformational uh, discovery because the utility of a biomarker in CSF is challenging. Uh, the levels might there might really predict neuron health because CSF kind of bathes the spinal cord in the brain, but it's really hard to get to, um, and it's it's painful. You can't do longitudinal studies where you're going to take CSF on a daily basis like you do with glucose monitoring. So the fact that that group discovered that this stuff gets from the CSF into the blood and that you could measure it quantitatively in blood was an aha moment. It really did indicate that this could be a non-invasive biomarker to look at neurodegeneration. Are there um, potential limitations to their usefulness for ALS? There are some limitations, yeah. I mean, there's no perfect biomarker, by the way. I mean, biomarkers are used as tools, um, but you have to be honest based on your data on how are you going to use that biomarker and how you're interpreting the information. So as an example, neurofilament light chains do correlate and are higher in neurodegenerative diseases compared to healthy controls. They appear to be higher in ALS than other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, which could be a good thing as far as utility in ALS, but it's not specific to ALS. But one thing that isn't fantastic about neurofilament as a biomarker is they don't change over time. One might hypothesize that when you show up in the clinic, you've had symptoms for a little while, um, and you get your horrible diagnosis of ALS, that that biomarker would change during disease progression. It tends not to. For individual A that gets their diagnosis in 2001, when they show up in the clinic six months later or a year later, their levels tend to be pretty stable from the day that they were diagnosed all the way through disease progression. Scientifically, you'd like to see neurofilament quantities change over time during disease progression. That's not the case. What they have shown, though, in some great studies by, by Wendt and others, is that the levels that you have at diagnosis are a pretty good surrogate to predict your disease progression rate. So if your levels are very high on day of diagnosis, you're unfortunately going to be a fast progressor. If your levels are low, you're going to be a slow progressor. Now, we should use those words fast and slow pretty loosely for today because it's going to take more data to put precise numbers around what do we mean, how much is low, how much is medium, how much is high as far as levels go. And that's one of the next steps that I think we need to do um, to really understand how we're going to apply levels to predicting disease progression rates. Um, and that sort of leads into my next question, which is just so what needs to happen? Um, what more do we need to know? What more do we maybe need to um, show the FDA before they could be approved as a biomarker? 
Sure. I think one thing that we need to continue to understand, and, and again, we're stealing something here from the Alzheimer's field in particular, which has a very long disease course. Unlike ALS, where you know you go from symptom onset to a very aggressive battle with a horrible disease, and you know median survivals can be somewhere they're probably higher than three to five years now due to earlier interventions and better interdisciplinary clinical care. Alzheimer's has a much longer disease and has a long dormant phase. So one of the key questions with applying neurofilament into um, biomarker utility in ALS is to try to understand some of the things that were developed in the Alzheimer's field earlier. So let me give you a concrete example of that. Um, uh, amyloid beta has always been talked about as a biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. Well, it turns out that it is, but we were really wrong on how to use it. It turns out that decades before you have any cognitive dysfunction, amyloid beta plaques are building up in your brain. And nobody's looking because you don't have any symptoms. So you can't really use amyloid beta after symptom onset because it's been there for a really long time. It turns out that phosphorylated tau is actually the protein that tends to show up in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease at the time of clinical onset, in other words, dementia. So understanding those things is really important. So again, Wendt is doing some really interesting experiments where they're looking at people with familial ALS pre-symptomatically. So it's about 10% of ALS cases are inherited through the family. And so you have an opportunity when you look at those families to study people pre-symptomatically and ask the question, are their neurofilament light chain, neurofilament heavy chains higher pre-symptomatically? And interestingly enough, the answer to that is no. So they've looked at a lot of families at this point, particularly SOD, CNN, NORFs, and the levels of neurofilament light and heavy chain are not different pre-symptomatically between healthies and pre-symptomatic. And then all of a sudden at symptom onset, levels go through the roof. So these types of studies are still, I think, required to understand how we're going to approach the FDA on when to use these biomarkers. The good news here is that unlike Alzheimer's disease, this biomarker is not upregulated prior to symptom onset. And if that data continues to be robust and pan out, that's better utility because it's not present prior to symptoms. The things I think that we still need to do as a community, and there's about a dozen clinical trials that are enrolling now that are going to use neurofilament light chain as surrogates of efficacy. We need to understand how quantitative our assays are, how reproducible they are. Do disease, do drugs that end up modifying disease progression correlate with changes in these neurofilament biomarkers? Because that hasn't been established yet. So those are still some of the things that we need to do in the clinic with these current sets of clinical trials and hopefully more moving forward in the next year or two to really validate to the FDA on how we're going to use these biomarkers and how robust can we measure them in blood and CSF. Um, are, are we working with NFLs at all at, uh, at ALS TDI? Um, so we are working with it and we have validated uh, commercially available assays in our precision medicine program. So our precision medicine program has about five to 600 people that have enrolled since 2014. We do blood or longitudinal blood collections on, on those people over time. And we have validated that neurofilament light and heavy chain in our hands is upregulated uh, in ALS patients compared to healthy volunteers. Uh, so as we continue to collect samples, many of our patients in our precision medicine program are participating in clinical trials. We're monitoring in-house here with our PMP folks, whether those treatments 
are changing their neurofilament light and heavy chain levels. Um, if you know someone who's listening is interested in keeping an eye on this stuff, do you have any recommendations of what should you be following sort of to see where this is going? Yeah, so the best thing to follow is unfortunately publications in the literature. They tend to lag about 12 months from when the data really gets you know, accumulated and analyzed to the point of a publication. Uh, the other places that you'll see them popping up prior to publication is at meetings. You know, pay attention to the abstracts that are published in poster sessions at, you know, ALSMND, which is in the fall. Um, another good one would be at AAN, which is occurring in April or May uh, here coming up pretty soon. NCALS, which is another ALS clinical meeting, uh, is in June. Those types of meetings will have posters where you'll get a, a preview, if you will, of if clinical studies are using neurofilaments as a surrogate of efficacy and what the data is starting to look like. They're kind of a preprint of what the paper might look like. Okay. Um, well, that covers um, my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to cover? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think the biggest summary here is that if neurofilaments end up being a well-characterized biomarker with quantitative assays for readouts of efficacy in ALS clinical trials, it could be quite groundbreaking because you can measure them much, much quicker than you can measure clinical endpoints. So it could really change the way we think about and design uh, ALS clinical trials moving forward, which would be really exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for um, speaking with us today. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at endpoints at ALS.net.